Hello everyone. Um extremely excited for today's episode. Um we have Mo Ali with us. Mo is a product management expert who's worked in product leadership roles at Apple, Bell Labs, um Loblo Digital and a few more. Um he's been product advisor to various companies including IBM, McKinsey, Pearson Education and more and currently he's the founder and CEO of Product Faculty. which offers product management training to pms and product leaders from the world's top institutions including google slack facebook mckinsey um and has trained over 2500 professionals welcome to the podcast mo excited to be here thank you for having ex- me yeah always um i i'm particularly excited about today's episode because we get to go deeper into some of the more um some of the foundational product management um topics and themes um and you know someone who's a product management expert like yourself can help us really kind of you know get a deeper understanding of the terminologies and concepts and um you know a lot of the um not a lot of things that we are often like we often hear and read about but don't really appreciate deeply um you know pro- best product management practices terminologies how do product managers fit into their initial roles and what not so i'm going to go into my first favorite question and that's about product strategy right product strategy is something that again gets thrown around a lot within the product management vacuum but it's something that not everyone truly understands so i'd love for you to kind of talk about what product strategy means to you and why is it critical to any successful product management practice awesome thank you for that uh question when you read the word uh product strategy or you see the books that are written on the topic There's a lot of these great books that are written on all these different seven powers or good strategy batch strategy or the things to do and all of them are very helpful um in their own aspect in terms of what you should be doing. However, if you read those books, they'll say things like you need network effects or chain link systems or BHAG set big holes and big talents and We still see examples of companies that have great network effects, strong brands, very talented employees, which I'm sure set really big goals, um but they still launch failed products. So then you begin to wonder why why is it still that if you're following what's what's written, you know, you're still failing. Then so really what to me when I think about product strategy is I want to get to the bottom of what does it take to actually be successful as opposed to fail on the products that I'm launching. So if it isn't all of these things, what is it that will make you successful? And what I found is that uh this one line really helps me think about strategy when it comes to thinking about whether what I'm building is going to be successful or not. And that line is don't compete, contrast against the biggest complaint that your customers have. So this goes to a lot of things that people say around you know you must differentiate but differentiation alone doesn't help what do you differentiate on um and so what what we say in this line is don't compete contrast which is differentiation however you do that on the biggest customer complaint now if you take this line and we take a product like Google Plus which was their social media network that they launched many many years ago and you look at why that failed through this lines it starts to make a lot more sense 
If you think about Google's social media network, which they invested a lot in and it failed, and apply it from the lens of don't compete contrast against the biggest complaint your customer has, at that time, the dominating social media network was Facebook. And I think that if you people really think about, was there a really big complaint against Facebook or was it doing a job that was fine? And when you think about it, it was working fine. There was no big complaint um, against Facebook. So Google didn't launch anything compelling that went against a complaint that their customer had about the competition or about the existing way of doing things. And so people never adopted their, their social media network. The same goes to apply to products like LinkedIn Stories. Now, if you think about the other Stories products like Instagram Stories, I mean, again, it's doing the job fine. There aren't too many complaints with it. Um, arguably, there's too many stories. I mean, there's so much, even with limited number of friends, there's, all, there's too much content. Um, and so when LinkedIn Stories launched, or even Twitter Stories launched, you know, was there a really big complaint against Instagram stories? There wasn't, and it just wasn't adopted. And it's not something that uh, was compelling. And you know, the key here is really not focusing on what, not launching something because you're a big, large company with lots of resources, honing into your customer complaints and contrasting on that. And without that contrast, doesn't matter if you are Google with, you know, seemingly infinite resources, um, or your LinkedIn with lots of resources, you're not going to end up building something that com is compelling that your customers will adopt. Okay, that's a very interesting uh, perspective on thinking about creating new products. But I'd kind of like to point counter this, uh, you know, this framework that you've shared with us. So how does it stand against the likes of um, companies and products that are doing truly innovation work, right? Because when you think a lot about, you know, starting a company, solving a problem. The first step that you often get to hear everywhere is try to understand the problem space from a principled approach um, and think about what is the biggest, like you said, uh, what is the biggest problem that needs to be solved? But oftentimes there isn't a competitor angle to it. Like there, like there could be a problem um, that needs to be solved, but there's a new need that needs to be met but it might be that there isn't a competition that's solving for it. And some would argue that that's the best business case to go to, which doesn't really have any space that is eaten up by competitors. Yeah. So the, remember the line is don't compete, contrast against your customer's biggest complaint. So that big complaint could be against a competitor or that big complaint could be against the existing way of doing things. And if you're doing zero to one products, in a space that has zero competitors, if there is no big complaint against the existing way of doing things, there really aren't any chances of you being successful, right? This is where a lot of very technical founders, where they might have a technology that they are really excited about, fall in love with that technology first and think that it can solve a lot of problems, but it, they're, they're first falling in love with the tech and then try to find use cases for it, which you know arguably doesn't work that well, as opposed to you know deeply understanding the problem space, deeply understanding a complaint that your competitor or the complaint that exists in that space, and launching a product that will tackle that. You know this is where I meet a lot of blockchain founders um, that are building products in the blockchain space, 
And a lot of them are very technical. And a lot of them are, when I talk to them, they're very excited about blockchain. They're very excited about the tech. And my question to even, um, I would say, somebody that was very well known building a blockchain product for one a really, really compelling company uh, was with him. I had a 45 minute conversation with him about like, what are you, you're the director of crypto for, for a very, very recognizable brand name. And you're, and he is a true builder. And I tried to get to the bottom of what is the customer problem that, that this is solving. And, and frankly, I couldn't get to it. I couldn't understand what that was. He was very excited about the technology, but I couldn't see how that was a compelling complaint that the customer has. And, and I don't know how successful that's going to be. So really like, you know, zero to one blue ocean new spaces are great if you can find a big customer complaint. Generative AI, on the other hand, I'm a huge fan of, right? I, I use it on a daily basis, basis to solve compelling activities like, you know, spin up offer letters, write job descriptions. And of course, there's something that you, you have to edit yourself as well. But I mean, th these are tactical things that save me 45 minutes of my time and I can get it done instantly, right? So, and, and generative AI, like if you think about the space, before I even knew about something like ChatGPT, um, I didn't even know what problems it could solve. Yet I'm having these, I have a you know big complaint against writing stuff down. It's, it's not easy to do and it's solving it in a very new way. So I think that that's, that's the way you want to think about it. And so that's such a, like, I think that like, you know, one of those concepts or um, one of those phenomena that kind of sounds easy to the ear, but it's still very difficult to kind of get a grasp of, right? Um, and like, this is what I'm learning more and more as I kind of go, you know, as, a, as my career years span, that to be very honest, what it truly means to be a product manager above all else is to be able to articulate a problem in a way that can drive business objectives. Like, you know, and to be able to articulate that problem, you have to need, you need to have a very deep understanding of the problem space like you talked about. But how does one go about that? Like, because I think that a lot of product managers struggle, like I know that there is the operational part of it, right? You know, like you need to be good with product analytics. You need to be, you know, somewhat technical to be able to speak and interact with your engineers. But when it comes to this, being able to understand the problem, how does one approach that mindset? How do you go about it? So it depends on the stage of where you are in a company, whether you are brand new or if you've been there, been at the company for a long time. If you're new to an organization and you're new to the space, I'd argue that it's very hard to be able to build compelling products quickly. Right. You, there's a minimum amount of time required to really build up a strong product sense to be able to come to compelling ideas. Um, if you're in that situation, there is no substitute to building up your product sense, <coughs> which you can do by both, you know, having um, sources of data, whether they're programmatic like NPS or social listening or, um, you know, many, many user testing data. Over, over a long time and having direct customer access and doing customer interviews over a long time. So the key is to have continuous access over a long time to both programmatic and non-programmatic data sources. So direct customer interviews and, and information, and that allows you to build, build your product sense. 
Once you have that, that allows you to start to get into ideas and 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 come up with a strong product sense. One thing I would add to this is that a lot of times, if you are new to an organization and you want to be able to add value quickly, you do that by asking great questions. And so, although a lot of times it may be sexy to think about strategy or what we should be working on, or you've got a ton of ideas, um, where you can add value faster and even faster than delivering quick wins is by aligning on the worldview that you have off an organ off the company worldview before strategy and worldview is something that you can do your first week on the role right what is the worldview it's asking different executives and different leaders asking them questions on key areas of your product who is the customer what is our competitive advantage? Um, what are the headwinds? What are the tailwinds? What's our differentiator? At this point, when you're gathering information on worldview, you're not talking about strategy. You're not giving ideas. You're just understanding worldview. And why that's beneficial is, firstly, you're going to be viewed as more strategic because you're asking great questions. And secondly, you then begin to compile the docu document on the worldview that aligns everyone. And what you might find is that one VP is saying one thing and another director who's influential is saying something else and somebody else is saying something else. And just by being the one who aligns everyone on the worldview, that gives you influence to be able to start to talk about strategy. What people do is they're new on a role, they're excited and they want to make an impact and they start to have strategic ideas. And that's very difficult to do when you're new to an org and there isn't even alignment on worldview, which you do by asking these great questions. Taking your approach to problem solving and taking your approach about product strategy, how does this apply to companies at different stages, um, companies with different business model, companies with different industries? Is this a flat model that can be applicable anywhere? There are many different company stages, but at a high level, I'll just talk to, about them in two different stages, which is zero to one and one to N, right? When you're building zero to one products, that's a very different cadence um, and way to go about things other than, other than one to N. When you're one to N, you already have a successful product in the market. You now have a ton of data on past performance and arguably it can be easier to come up with your new direction because there's a ton of information on how things have gone in the past. And there for a PM to be successful, they have to be good at analyzing data um, and using that to be informed to come up with the strategy of where you want to head. Now, if you're zero to one, that's a whole other ballgame. And this is really where, you know, I've managed product managers that worked in zero to one and really struggled, but one to end flourished. So it's important to know yourself and what you're good at and what it takes to be successful in these different environments. While in one to end, you've got a lot of data and you have to be data informed and you've already got past success to run off of, zero to one is a whole other ballgame. It is one step forward, two steps back. And people that really thrive in a chaotic environment doesn't mean they create chaos, but 
the chaos doesn't throw them off and they're able to guide their teams that, Hey, you know what? We're going to do something and we might be wrong. Then we do something else. We, we might be, you know, this, and, and we may go in the wrong direction to be able to set that expectation while still having a vision. You know, that's super important without that. If you're not able to do that and you're, you're a strict one to NPM where it's all about process and one thing after another, you come in into a zero to one environment and you guide your teams in the same way, they're going to totally lose trust in you because you're trying to follow a process and it's going to keep on breaking. So you have to set the expectations that we are not following a step-by-step -step process. It might be one step forward, two steps back, and then we catapult forward. Um, and being able to set those right expectations and being able to thrive in chaos and still tell a story around it, you know, that becomes really, really important uh, in, in that zero to one environment. Yeah, and that's how how does one determine what kind of model like you like you talked about the two different models one to end and end to one, um, which one they're cut out for like early yeah. stages in your career? I think it comes down to your risk appetite, right? If you generally have a high risk appetite, then you're going to be fine in a zero to one environment. But if a lot of uncertainty throws you off, um, then you know, one to N is, is probably a much better environment for you. Now you may know that by assessing your, how you've been so far, right? Like if there's uncertainty, does that make you uneasy? Um, but there might, in it, but if you're very early, this is your first role, you may not know that. And you might just want to go through both, right? You start zero to one and you see how that feels. And if you were like, I wish I knew the exact next step of what to do. And that's, you cringe for process, then, okay, that's a signal that maybe you need to try, uh, you know, one to end, and then you will have that process. But if the lack of process and lack of clarity and chaos, it doesn't entirely throw you off, then that's a sign that, okay, you know what, maybe I can continue to be successful. Um, what, what I'm, when I'm hiring people for different roles, that's the, these are the type of questions that I will ask them. And if I, it is a zero to one role, I will be very clear with them that, look, it's going to feel like we're not giving you clear directions because there isn't clarity as there would have been at if this project was one to end, right? There's going to be a ton of uncertainty and, and this is what the job is going to be like. So by describing the uncertainty that exists and seeing the person's reaction, if they're like, oh my God, I can't do that. Like you can sense it, then it's probably, they're probably not the right fit. But if you, they're like, yeah, okay, th throw uncertainty at me. I'm used to this. Uh, then they're, you know, more likely to be successful in that environment. Yeah. And I think it also kind of, like you said, it matters. Your risk appetite also changes as you, you know, again, progress through your career and through your life, you might be a bit more, um, you know, risk prone early on in your career and, um, you know, risk averse later on. Um, I'd like to hear from you about the different companies, uh, you know, that you've worked with. What are some of the companies that have really good product strategies? And I'd also like to maybe understand and what are some companies that have really pivoted their product strategy? And in that, I would love if you could share a few anecdotes about some consulting companies, right? Because I know consulting has gone really big on digital transformation in recent years and yeah. started to set up their product divisions and whatnot. Um, so how have they pivoted their strategy and how successful have they been? And what are just generally some companies whose product strategy you know you're a fan of, and you recommend other companies to also uh, mimic? So here are some signs 
where I can tell that there is a lack of strategy versus one that there is, you know, strong strategy. When you, when you speak to a company and they're spiky, spiky means that they are, you know, clearly saying yes to some areas and no to others and making trade-offs, you know, that's a really, really great sign that they, um, have thought about making those trade-offs, um, not just thought about them intellectually, but are committing to those, right? And are uh, much, much more likely to be su successful as opposed to not. Look, the, the sad reality of product management is most of the features that we build, like half of them are not gonna work. They're gonna fail, right? So if half of the features are gonna fail um, and only half of them are gonna work, with the half that work, if you're all over the place and you're doing many different things, you're not going to be able to move, make any movement. So for the half that are going to work for your customers, they have to be very strategically doing some things very, very well, others not so well, and others being much worse than their competition. Now that is in an organization, people may understand that it's a popular line to say, Hey, it's, you got to make trade-offs intellectually they get it but emotionally they don't follow through you know when you tell head of a department of customer operations um hey you know what i understand that we are a new product and there's fraud in our product but we don't care we're not going to solve for fraud for the next year and what that means and i'm saying this because it's actually happened right mm -hmm. we, we this company i, I was recognizable company I was working with, we're launching a massive zero to one product. Our head of support is like, we have fraud and that fraud is making us lose money and nobody wants to lose money. And it's also adding time because we have to go and uh, reverse those frauds. And it, it's taking my, our agents a lot of their time. I said, well, what, what percent of our orders are, are committing this fraud? Oh, 0 0.001. How much time does it take you? Oh, out of our team of seven, one person has to spend two hours. Okay, what is the dev capacity required to fix fraud? It will take a, like a month. And we are, we have on one end, do I, do we do this? Or do we help 100,000 customers, you know, uh, use our product? So that's where telling them, hey, we're not going to do it now, but we're not even going to do it for a year. Forget it. You know, that's, these are, when, when I hear stuff like that or trade-offs, not just being made intellectually, but actually being made um, uh, like emotionally as well. That's a really good sign that that there is going to be some progress uh, made in that company. Now, what, a company that now you asked a second question about transformations and what does it take to really transform and what are the attributes that make a successful company transform, especially with consulting firms um, starting up. I'll start with an example, then I'll talk about attributes. So one of the best examples of a large scale transformation that I think was done really, really well was with Adobe, right? Uh, if you think about 15 years ago, Adobe used to ship DVDs to customers' houses uh, or their office. And their business model was that a, an Adobe Photoshop suite used to cost thousands of dollars. And if you imagine something costing thousands of dollars that you're shipping in boxes um, requires an entirely different company than shipping subscriptions. This is not just a business model change. This is a change to the entire organization of the type of people that you hire to market, your sales VPs that have incentives and goals and targets, like the entire company is different as opposed to selling subscriptions. And Adobe was able to 
make a transformation from selling these high-end packages to a subscription model, which arguably kills companies, if, if not done properly, because it just goes against the ethos of how the company operates in, in many, many ways. And I can talk about many failures, even if you look at, you know, BlackBerry, right? They, they you know, were the first in MDM, which is managed devices, yet they never made the transformation and they never got rid of their hardware devices for a long time. So in any case, there's lots of examples of companies failing, but Adobe has done a really great job of making that uh, switch over. And in studying how they did it, uh, you know, we got the opportunity, we were, uh, Marty Kagan ran the session around um, coaching for coaches and, and so all the coaches attended. And one of the uh, folks that helped to do this transformation was there. And she said that really, there are a couple of attributes of making this successful. The first attribute is really making sure that everybody understands the vision. And the vision is not just understood on an intellectual level, but emotional level. And you can do that through vision story typing, right? So making videos, adding music, it really does help to make a story out of the vision of where you want to go. Pieces of slides or pieces of paper that have, you know, oh, like a more mechanical vision, it doesn't work. Uh, emotional storytelling really does work when it comes to um, setting that vision. The second was, you know, uh, pr uh, principles over process, right? Rather than being very, very sticky on, you must follow this step, this step, this step, let's set up the right attributes to be able to make good decisions. And those are really working in it. things that you've all probably already heard of, working in a trio, so an engineer and a designer and a PM working together to make those, uh, make those decisions together, as opposed to uh, a process shop where product management did their thing, passed it on to design and then design passes on to engineering, uh, as so on and so forth. And the last was really around switching their cadence of development. So when it's, it's a huge, huge change of shipping software on a yearly basis to moving into bi-weekly sprints. Sounds easy, sounds obvious, but it's incredibly hard for an entire company that used to do one-year release cycles to go to the, these, um, you know, bi-weekly cycles. So those are sort of the three attributes that really made that, made them successful. Speaking about big companies and speaking about some of the changes that have gone about them, I, you know, I, just, just this one thing came to my mind and it's almost become like a universal truth of sorts where the smaller companies are now building better UX, are delivering customer customer value faster, and are able to kind of reiterate really fast as well, as opposed to a big company, maybe creating the same product, having 10 times or more, if not more, the amount of resources, the network effects, but still not being able to deliver, right? And it just makes me kind of think that some of these bigger players actually just let some of these smaller players exist so that, you know, they can eventually acquire or, you know, be the case of Microsoft, where they can create something similar and package it in a, in, in, you know, in a, in a suite where they can offer that same product at a very small marginal cost of like $2, right? $2 additional cost and you get the same product or sim a very similar, a very good copy of that product. So like, you know, thinking about how Notion came about and completely disrupted the note taking and the productivity space. And it kind of, you know, no one was able to take over it. If anything, another startup came close to it, which is Coda. Um, so what are your thoughts about that? Don't quote me on this, but you can quote me on this, hmm. in that large companies just can't innovate fast. 
you know, just doesn't happen because of the what's set up. They have other advantages. They've got revenue to protect, got big organizations, they've got processes, they've got things that are going on that, you know, we haven't really come across organizations that just can innovate and be fast. What does that mean? Well, you have other advantages. When you're big, you, you have other things that you can do, like Microsoft has done, but trying to artificially be like a small company, it just, it's not work very well. And we've seen many, many examples of it, of it not happening. So yeah, there's just advantages in both, right? One shouldn't always try to be the other, but, but, but work around it in a very, very clever way that Microsoft has done. But there, and, and you're right about that. And I feel like there are still some companies that I would say are able to kind of maintain that initial days of like, you know, of like the initial hustle of a startup, right? Like Shopify is one example. Stripe is not really a startup. Like, you know, it's a, I don't know how it's probably the, the world's most highly valued private company, but uh, private startup. Um, but I feel like there's still some companies that are able to retain that early part of, you know, what it, what it meant to be a startup. Um, and what it meant to be, you know, just to people in a room, you know, in a room and solving a problem um, for, you know, for their customers and still retaining that culture, even when they're very big. And I guess that is probably one aspect of good, strong leaders um, that are yeah. able to, you know, still um, permeate that uh, aura of vision and mission, um, still able to align their teams over that mission and vision that allows them to continue forever. I um, agree with you there. And I think that there would the, the attributes of those two companies are that the founders are still involved, right? Yeah. Uh, so both Shopify and Stripe, both the CEO and founders are involved. So I can see where you can carve out some capacity and just break the rules because it's your own company, do whatever they want. Whereas a lot of other companies, when they have professional management in place, and you've got investors and decks and so on and so forth. That's, that's where the more process becomes uh, necessary. In some cases, professional management turns out to be good for you. Like in the case of like Eric Schmidt joining Google in early 2000s and like scaling it to be like, I don't know, the most valued company on planet Earth. Um, but uh, moving on, I also want to kind of uh, get your thoughts on, um, you know, product managers using data to their advantage to drive product strategy. Um, you know, we were not very long ago in a world where we didn't have a lot of data. Um, and even if we had data, it was largely inaccessible. Um, and now we struggle because we have too much of it. And even though it seems accessible, um, it really truly takes skill um, and the right mindset to be able to turn it into something that's you know beneficial um, and something that kind of and ends up arming you with an advantage, with a distinct advantage that really helps you, you know, pro like, you know, prosper amongst your competition. So what are your thoughts about that? And how do companies, how do successful companies utilize data? So we're lucky now that we have so much data, as you said, to measure everything, interactions and clicks. And um, arguably there's just so much of it. We went from a phase of no data to being data vomiting now mm -hmm. with, with everything. And I'm sure you've been in the meetings where people are looking at dashboards and everybody's looking at a dashboard, but they come back with their own interpretation of it because somebody's looking at this one chart in the bottom that's doing this. Somebody else is looking at that chart that, that can do this and, and so on and so forth. And really, so while the data is helpful, you can diagnose with data, but you really have to treat with design and design really is 
living in the solution space. It's not really building specifically being in Figma or prototyping, but really all aspects of solutioning, you know, come from treating the data with design and being informed by it. Um, I, I'm also just very personally a big, I am I'm still a big believer of, of uh, instinct and be able to make decisions based on all these different data sources that you've accumulated and, um, you know, big strategic decisions that, that are made uh, that are very successful often don't have the right data uh, or don't have clear data making those decisions, right? You, you look at like what, what Elon Musk and his decision to cut the prices of cars significantly has never been done in the history of the car company he made that change when he made it, why he made that, right? He has a lot, he, have, he has over 20 years in a, of instincts when it comes to cars and pricing and, and building. Twitter and, and, and social media network, he doesn't yet. And you know, we're seeing the results of what's happening at Twitter. Um, and he's building up his instincts there. But when it comes to car companies, he has tremendous amount of insight and he made decisions that literally every MBA would have never made, right? All other car companies are freaking out. And that's like an in instinct-based decision. His instincts on launching a Cybertruck, right? That is something that is uh, instincts-oriented. Uh, I'd, I'd be interested to see also, I don't think that the, um, um, like, a lot of people say Meta is going to fail, but but that's a highly instinctual decision about Meta. And I don't think the, they're going to, like, them going into the virtual spaces and and, like, you know, moving the company in, in the virtual world. I don't know if the, the metaverse is, is, is as um, failed as everyone thinks, but that is a highly instinct-driven decision that the CEO and founder has made that there wasn't the right data on. And jury's still out whether it's going to be successful or not. But I think that, that um, there probably has more likes than people are giving benefit to, to it. If uh, I, I'm also very true, I'm a true believer in, uh, like Mark Zuckerberg's vision of metaverse, I feel like maybe he's he's a bit too early in it, but I think that you know eventually maybe in the long run they've been out um, because it was so early in it, and you know looking back in hindsight we'll be like, oh wow, you know they really did make the the right decisions. Um, and I think that eventually when you know when when the technology catches up, both from a, a you know hardware perspective and from a software perspective, which I think you know. AI, pair, AI paired with um, AR, it's yeah. it's probably going to be it's probably going to change the world forever. And I also feel like just to your point about Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, like I also feel like instinct um, and that kind of you know principled systems thinking approach, which I've heard a lot in Elon Musk's interview and you know talks coming up, where he really doesn't you know he really doesn't care a lot about frameworks and thoughts until it kind of you know is able to support uh, the first principle thinking, like the bottom-up thinking, um, which like yeah. you said, right, uh, is like the different ways to build it. And one of those is thinking about what is the biggest complaint your product can contrast. And so, um, yeah, thank you for that insight. So going in, like talking about AI, um, I was recently listening to to Lenny's podcast and uh, I came across, talk about, there was this uh, guest, uh, I, I think her name is Marily and she's a AI product leader at Meta. And she was talking about that everyone is going to be an AI product manager in five to 10 years, right? So what do you take away from that? How do you infer this statement? 
Um, and generally, what are your thoughts about AI impacting the role of product management? By the way, Mary is involved with product faculty as well. She actually is the Capstone Project uh, mentor that mm-hmm. we have. So she mentors students on on our Capstone Project. So very familiar with her. Um, look, I think that the, again, the technology will be forgotten. The, the, the effects of the technology will be expected very soon. Today, it's magical when you go to ChatGPT and the other generative AI solutions and you work with them and you're like constantly surprised at, wow, it can do this, wow, it can do that. But very quickly, what is a delighter today before we know it is going to be table stakes tomorrow. So where I think Mary's primarily coming from, where Mary is coming from that every product manager is going to be an AI product manager is that how quickly the world has transformed by experiencing ChatGPT and generative AI Everybody is going to expect that very, very soon. And that's where, you know, I know um, product managers working in generative AI at uh, Canva and Adobe, all these great companies, those roles are being spun up very quickly because, you know, what was yesterday's uh, delight has become today's table stakes in a very, very short amount of time because we just expect it. So. That's really where I think it's one, I agree with Marilee that this is one of those technologies that are so transformative um, that we're going to, everyone has to be an AI product manager because they have to understand it, be abreast of these trends and figure out very fast how their product can use this technology. And I'm saying generative AI generally, right? Um, not not specifically charged APT only, right? And be able to apply that in their product. Otherwise, their customers are going to go somewhere else where it does have uh, it. Ha- it does have that tech, where it solves a compelling complaint for them. I still feel like I haven't quite got wrapped my head around the impact or the effect of this technology, and you know, especially like I understand it currently, but the speed at which it's evolving, like the the impact that it will have on a lot of jobs. Right, it already is having an impact on a lot of jobs for content writers, marketers, um, designers. What is one way that product managers can start to future-proof themselves um, and, you know, can start to basically take advantage of this technology rather than be skeptical of it? I think one of the core responsibilities of strong product managers is to be abreast of trends. Um, Really, if you probably heard the concept of an S-curve, right? If you are at the beginning of a trend, all you have to do is exist and you will Uh, benefit from that trend taken off. So what can product managers do? If they see a trend like generative AI that is taking the world by storm, you know, be the early explorer and seeing what is this like? What can it do? How could this possibly solve something compelling for my product? Um, And being ahead of it as opposed to being afraid of it and saying, no, no, this doesn't apply to me. So what does that mean? That means, you know, spending a certain amount of time, maybe even a couple of hours a week, just understanding the space, playing around with the different tech that's coming out and really being abreast of it to see how it can apply to you. Really those generational gains happen when you do implement something that is like this. Uh, and I, you know, I'm very excited about the tech. I think it's, it's fantastic. Everybody at product faculty, um, I've gotten subscriptions for uh, either the, the paid version of it and I'm like, use it, let us share our learnings. And it's like really help seeing how everybody in the company can accelerate from that as opposed to, uh, you know, just being afraid of it uh, and and saying, you know, putting up our hands and be like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know what this is. And 
I hope it just passes. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and to be very honest, like, like that's such good advice. Um, and not just with like, not, not just specifically for this technology, but just generally like this mindset, um, is, is something that, you know, as you, as we keep on evolving and as we keep on seeing significant technological gains, mindset will, I feel, you know, uh, go a long way in helping you become more adept at this techno at these technologies. Uh, rather than like we said, um, be skeptical of it. So I want to kind of pick your brain on understanding what to you makes a good product manager. Um, because, you know, you personally work with thousands of product managers, train them. And, you know, so you probably have a very good instinct developed now into kind of, you know, categorizing good product managers, bad product managers and great product managers. Um, and, you know, so if, I would love to get some insight as to, you know, what, how, how, what you think makes a good or a great product manager. I'm sure you ask this to all of the folks that come here and they all have different answers and I, they're all very great. But the single singular thing that I really uh, think that over the long term uh, makes a difference between um, a good product manager versus someone that is, is going to plateau for sure is really, aside from being smart and intelligent, all that other good stuff, you have to have minimum level of intelligence. The, the, the behavioral trait, personality trait that makes the really the truly the best PMs is really someone that is egoless, right? Someone that is able to do the hard work of putting their ego aside and really elevating the best ideas in the room, which is not easy, right? When you're having conversations, is it all about you or is it really about getting to the one person in the room that isn't speaking? Maybe they have the truly the best idea. And the reason that's important, very important is that half of all features fail. And if you're not egoless and your ego is in the way, then you can cover up for that. You can play politics and you can blame other things. But if you are egoless, if you're truly about getting to ruthless causality in your product, which is the essence of truth. Um, and so that's sort of the thing or the trait that I really talk to people about is try to be egoless and elevate the best ideas in the room and air all the voices because by elevating all the voices, the one that is the best is going to be the one that you can hear. If you don't even elevate the voices, you don't even hear the quiet person that isn't saying something, then you're likely to miss out on those opportunities and go with something that you want, as opposed to something that could have been more, much more successful. Yeah, that's such great advice. Um, and I'd also love to hear about what are some skills, right? Or what is that skill set that you would encourage product managers to kind of, you know, become better at and learn from. I mean, just generally, what are your go-to kind of, you know, what is your go-to approach to learning something? So with learning, I think it's very helpful to subscribe to all the newsletters, others on there, everybody, right? Like those general newsletters are fine to help you build up your knowledge, but I, I think that can also be ineffective in getting you the results that you want, um, as opposed to, having lots of uh, disparate sources of information that you're trying to learn from, being more focused and taking a product-oriented approach to your learning uh, is much more effective, right? So build yourself a learning roadmap. Hey, you know what? Uh, these are the skill sets that, I, that I, I'm new to product management and I'm not good at these skill sets. I'm gonna spend the next 10 years being a product manager. So the time frame is longer. Why don't I build up one skill set per quarter? So as an example, if you're in a zero to one environment, well, you better be good at strategy, right? It, it's incredibly important. So if that's the role that you're in, 
say, you say, okay, similar to how you make trade-offs with your career, I'm not going to focus on analytics right now. I'm not going to focus on this. I'm not going to focus on this, but I'm going to spend a quarter to become the best at strategy. And you do that by understanding your way of learning, whether it's books, whether it's audiobooks, whether it's taking a course, if you'd like to be in person, whatever your learning method is, understand your most optimal learning method and just, just spend that quarter on strategy. Once you're done, then move on to the next skill set and then move on to the next skill set. So really my answer to that is not just as don't go everywhere and spread yourself thin and do a little bit of everything. Be very focused, build yourself a learning roadmap and, and, and do it that way. The one other piece of advice that I would give is product managers are very busy. They're all like, I don't have time. And I, I'm just mm -hmm. rightfully so, right? Our calendars look crazy, but I think that it is incredibly important. If you work 50 hours a week, realistically, you need to spend at least 10% or a certain good chunk of your time, of your work time building up your skill set. So that is part of your core work, right? So if you think that strategy is the thing that you want to focus on because you're zero to one, you have to spend a minimum of five hours during your 50 hours allocated to work on strategy and, and apply the same rigor to that. Don't just be lazy and say, oh, this is my off time. No, like this is like, what's the best way that I can learn strategy as quickly as possible? Maybe it's a book, maybe it's a course, you know, maybe it's speaking to other people, but apply that rigor to your, to your own learning roadmap and dedicate, uh, you know, a good chunk of your core time to it. Could be 5%, could be 10%. I think 10% is a minimum. And you'll find is that will allow you to work faster and that will give you more time later. Okay, and this ties in very well with my, uh, you know, final question today, which is that what are yeah. some of your favorite resources? Um, and this doesn't need to be specifically about product management or even startups for that matter. Um, but just generally, you know, what are some of the things that you enjoy reading, listening to, watching? It could be anything. Yeah, so I really enjoy um, Shreyas Doshi, like his content. This is fantastic. He's so thoughtful. And frankly, the things that he recommends are so diverse. A lot of them aren't even about directly about product management, but I find his recommendations really great. And I do follow those um, and they go all over. He'll talk about creativity. He'll talk about life, but he's really thought through what he recommends. And I, I find that um, his recommendations are really worth, uh, worth the time. Uh, and oftentimes they may not even be the most popular book out there, but when you read it, you're like, wow, I wish I knew this earlier. So I would say like, he's the one person I would uh, ask to follow. He also has a great course, by the way, uh, which I, I think is really great for PMs. If you're thinking about your career, uh, I do recommend, uh, you know, his, his, his short course on that. Um, we just recently posted about um, advanced principles. I just have it open in front of me. Advanced principles for clear thinking. And it's just it's like, you know, like, I feel like I, I'm almost envious at this point. Like, you know, people of like yourselves and like Rasif, those you were able to text take such complex ideas and topics and convey it in such simple terms that, um, you know, amateurs like me um, couldn't even do it, even if we tried writing it down in, you know, tens of pages. Which I'm not, I'll be clear about that. But uh, yeah, no, I also admire how he's able to do that. It's just sort of put, putting all our links uh, in together and being able to come up with it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, thank you so much more. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, hope to have you soon again. Um, and thank you everyone for tuning in. Um, please do give us your feedback. Yeah. Bye. For sure. Thank you for this conversation. Take care.